I want to start off really quickly. I want to say a uh, uh, shout out to uh, some of the many uh, OG Everywhere host homes that have been popping up. Uh, I get texts all the time. Uh, people are doing it right there in their neighborhood. So uh, good morning to all of you out there. And then also to our high schoolers. They're, uh, they're joining us for this series. So um, they're going to be using this service as uh, their content to, to do some small groups and some studies. So uh, we hope they enjoy it as well. Uh, I want to say that we, we, we set up a lot of our services such that the music that we use um, and the clips, uh, video clips, kind of extend to the message. It's all one message. We're, we're trying to communicate one thing today. Um, so there's a, there's a bit of a spoiler. If you want to come in and figure out what we're talking about, listen to the songs. But we're, we're trying to communicate uh, something today. And, and uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave that there for a second. And I'm going to let you, let you work it around in your brain, trying to figure out what it is. But that clip that we just saw, that clip from, from the shack. Like I said, if you've seen it, you kind of know where it goes. But can anybody resonate with that clip? You resonate with that feeling. Uh, has there been a time in your life, or, or maybe that time is now, where you felt like God is just as responsible for the bad things in life as God is for the good things in life? You've had that kind of internal turmoil um, when something bad happens. We've asked that question earlier in this series. Um, but maybe your view is like Max here, and, and he just thinks of, he thinks of God as judgmental, God as punishing, as punitive, as not really all that good, perhaps. So I don't, I don't know if this has been you, but we get this mindset that God is just waiting to cast judgment on us all, waiting to cast judgment for all the mistakes and the shortcomings of our lives. It can begin to build up, and that can begin to be our vision of God. And it becomes a pretty prevalent narrative um, of what God is like, especially, especially in, in our religious settings. But it also becomes out in the social and political world, too. If, if you see a disaster or something on TV, uh, it's not long after that that someone will come out and exclaim that this is God's judgment. God is bringing judgment on whoever for whatever the bad and the good belong to God in, in that mindset. Somehow, we've shifted from a God of love, a God that is longing to be with us, a God that came to earth to be with us, to draw us back to him, to a, a type A, um, unhappy, dissatisfied God who is... Uh, essentially just watching all of our actions and constantly disappointed with how we're turning out. The, the shift has happened over time. It's happened subtly. Even some of us that, that believe that God is love and that God is good, uh, that can sit in the back of our mind just a little bit. That, that, oh, I, I screwed up. I screwed up and now God is, is waiting to pounce. But I want to propose that, that God is not this perpetually dissatisfied being that religion has, has kind of made him out to be, or society has made him out to be, or, or whoever. But God is love. God is bent on loving us no matter what. And I know you've heard that a thousand times up here. So I don't want you to get caught up in, I've already heard that. <clears throat> I want to talk about that in a little more depth today. And forgive me if I cough. Every, I think everybody in here is sick, right? Everybody right now is sick? I'm sick too. So uh, I'm going to try and shield it a little bit. <clears throat> um, 
Someone just said God did it. Who, who said that? Who said that? Good. We're already starting off good. Um, so before we get to God is love, I want, I want a little a quick conversation um, about something else, something that uh, sometimes gets shied away from. Uh, people will say uh, uh, that if a preacher is, is soft, they avoid it at all costs, and if there's someone who preaches the word, that uh, they're the kind of people that lavish this all the time like atomic bomb blasts. But uh, this word, this word that we use in Christianity, you can forget all the four-letter words. We have these bad four-letter words, but this is the three-letter word. This is the three-letter word that it all stems from, right? And that word is sin. Sin. Now, to some people, to some people, sin is simply the mistakes we make. We're all human. We make mistakes. We're moderately imperfect, right? Some of us closer to perfect than others. But we all mess up a little bit, here and there. To others, sin is nothing less than our self-inflicted misery. It's the very depravity of our being. And that idea is summarized in something uh, known as uh, the doctrine or the concept of original sin. That from the very moment we were born, we were sinners. Um, there's nothing good in us that, that God has to come because we are just awful people. And God has to bring us back. Now, the question we're looking at today is, how can I know the heart of the Father? So the series, the Shack series, has all been about questions. Um, we've addressed some tough ones, uh, some ones that we probably all have. But today, how do we know the heart of the Father? Or another way of saying this might be, how can I know what God is like and what God desires for me, for us, for this world? And the reason I bring that up after an intro about sin is because our perspective of sin, of what it is, what it does, and what it means with our relationship with God, uh, that can form how we think about what God is like. And it can form how we, how we interact with God. Now, you could say the other way around, that our, our version of God depicts our, our version of sin or our view of sin. And I would think that's right as well. But sometimes you can't just go and uh, attack the top thing. You've got to come... You've got to come from underneath. So today, I'm going to talk about our view of sin and how that relates back to our view of God. So to do that, I'm going to start with a story. How many of you are here for the Once Upon a Time series? Anybody? A couple people? All right. In the Once Upon a Time series, we looked at stories that Jesus told um, that, that often get called parables. But these stories uh, that Jesus used to try and communicate some really deep truth. And a lot of the parables had to do uh, with something that Jesus called the kingdom. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, the same thing. But the kingdom that is coming, uh, like Jesus says in his prayer, uh, on earth as it is in heaven. This kingdom that's coming to us. So he uses a lot of stories to talk about the kingdom. But he also uses a few stories to talk about what God is like. How, how God responds to us. What God desires for us. And I think this is really... Uh, important and a, a really, uh, uh, really probably one of the best ways to look at what God is like. We could talk about it all day until we're blue in the face, but, or we could look at what Jesus said, uh, especially if we, we believe that Jesus is God come to earth. Um, if we believe, like in the Gospel of John, where Jesus says, uh, I and the Father are one. If you've seen the Father, you've seen me. So Jesus telling a story about 
what God is like seems about as close to the horse's mouth as you can get. So I want to explore uh, one of these stories here. One of, the favorite, one of my favorite stories kind of in this, uh, in this line of, of what God is like is the prodigal son. And I know you know it, um, but I want to read a little bit of it because I want to make sure we're all on the same page. So if you're a Bible bringer, it's Luke 15. If your Wi-Fi is down, it's on the screens. Luke 15, uh, starting with verse 11. It says, To illustrate this point further, Jesus told them a story. A man had two sons. The younger son told his father, I want my share of your estate now before you die. So his father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. A few days later, the younger son packed all his belongings and moved to a distant land. And there he wasted all his money in wild living. About the time his money ran out, a great famine swept over the land, and he began to starve. He persuaded a local farmer to hire him, and the man set him into his fields to feed the pigs. The young man became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding the pigs looked good to him, but no one gave him anything. So Jesus begins by telling the story about a father and a son. It's a story about two sons, but let's focus on the one son. It takes up the bulk there. Father and a son. And in this story, the son is presumably dissatisfied with his life. He's dissatisfied with the way things are going. He's bored, whatever. And so he decides that it's time to make his own way. It's time for him to go and be his own man and head out into the world. And, uh, and so he asks his father for his share of everything so that he could go and do this. He could go out on his own. Can any of you relate with this mindset? Maybe that was you at one point in your life, or uh, potentially it's your kids. It was your kids. It's your kids right now. But at some point, the rules of the house uh, didn't sit well anymore, right? You wanted to kind of do your own thing, and no more, no more in the house by 9 or 10 or 11 or whatever it was, and you, know, you just wanted to be able to make your own rules and do your own thing. I think a lot of people have been there. My brother moved out at 19, and, uh, and he never moved back home. He got his own apartment, he got a job, he kind of did his own thing. I was a little later at 26, kind of <laughs> on his heels, on his heels, a little later. So, but we, make our own, we all make our own way, right? But at some point, at some point, I'm not saying when that point is, but at some point, we all leave the nest, right? We all move on. Um, just for some quick cultural context, those opening lines that we read, the first, the first kind of two sentences, um, would have been shocking, if not scandalous, to the people that Jesus was talking to. The, the, the idea that a son would ask for his inheritance while his father was still alive was absolutely out of the question. And so this broke all kinds of cultural and religious and ethical and even social norms. I mean, this was just, this was a no-no. This is something uh, that you just absolutely did not do. And so the son would have been viewed as very ungrateful. And he would essentially have been saying that I no longer want to be part of the family. It's not so much that I just want to go, it's time for me to start my life. It's I don't want to be a part of the family anymore. And that's huge uh, in, that, in that day and age. He was disowning himself, separating himself from the family unit, which just, you just didn't do it. The family unit was everything for you. 
in that time and place. It was, it was uh, your job, your economics. It was your social life, your society. It was, most of the time it was your village. The whole village was somehow like your family related to you in some way. So this was like a total ostr- uh, ostracizing of himself. So now I want to bridge this conversation with what we started talking about on sin. And so I may jump back and forth a little bit, so just stay with me. But what is the sin that the son commits in the passage that we just read? I want you to think about that. What is the sin? Was it asking for his inheritance too early, which was culturally taboo? Was it leaving home or walking out on the family? Was it being dissatisfied with his life? Was it the things that he did with his money? The passage doesn't completely say, but it, it sounds like he wild living, right? He, he went out and, and did some things that were uh, perhaps frowned upon um, by, by normal s- uh, society standards. Was it just the fact that he wasted his money? Maybe not so much what he did with it, but the fact that he just went out there and he just blew all this money. Or was it working with the pigs, which uh, in Judaism is unclean? That's a, that's a big no-no as well. Or did he even sin at all? The story doesn't tell us a lot, but let's go a little bit further. If you go to uh, verse 17, same chapter, verse 17. It says, When he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, At home, even the hired servants have enough food to spare. And here I am, dying of hunger. I will go home to my father and say, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy of being called your son. Please take me on as a hired servant. Okay, so we have this acknowledgement of sin. The, the son says, Father, I've sinned against heaven and you. So clearly the son has sinned in some, some form. But what the sin is, the text doesn't say. And, and that can be sometimes frustrating if you, if you ever read the Bible. Um, very often we're looking for something that's like laid out for us. You know, the A to Z, the workflow process after this box, and then this box, and then this box. Right? That's what we're looking for in the Bible. Tell me what I'm trying to figure out. But very often, it doesn't do that. It's not a textbook. It's not, uh, it's not attempting to just lay things out for us. Very often, we have to do some work. We have to infer what's going on a little bit. We've got to think and participate in the words. And, and really, uh, especially in Judaism, for its entire existence, Judaism has been this conversation with the Scripture from now back to then, conversating and filling it out and rounding it out in our own day. So there's a lot to do uh, to investigate into these scriptures. But if we look at this kid starving and slopping pigs, uh, I think you can almost feel him forming his I'm sorry speech. It's kind of moving around in his head. Have you ever had, have you ever worked on your I'm sorry speech? Anybody? Like, you messed up. And you knew it, and it was big, and so you start going through everything in your head, and, okay, what do I got to say? What, which, what were all the things that I did wrong? I got to roll them in there. I don't want to forget anything, and I don't want to forget the stuff that I did. I want to make sure I, I get it in there. So we, we just, okay, I've got this speech. And so you're, like, practicing it in your head over and over, and, and you know that, like, when you see that person, you cannot let them talk, right? You can't let them say anything because you just got to just go and just get it out, if they start talking, then you'll forget and you'll mess it up. So you just got to go in there, guns blazing, I'm sorry speech. His speech seems to revolve around a, a deep and, and pretty terrifying thought 
Uh, again, especially in that day and age. But this, this thought that there's no way I could go back to my father. There's no way he would ever be able to forgive me. He, he may not even forgive me enough to let me be one of his slaves. Like, I, I just don't think that I can be taken back after this. And I think that's a thought we've all experienced at one time or another. No matter what we've done or who we've done it to, there was always that time where I don't know if I can be forgiven for this. I don't know if, if things will ever be like they were. I don't know if, if it can be the same. And so I think while he's, while he's working and doing these things, he, he's going through everything that he's done. And, and what happens is that um, that guilt and that shame and that fear, all those things begin to like fester inside of us. They settle in our heart and they just they eat away at us. We let our assumptions of what the other person might say, we let that, coupled with our guilt and fear, begin to really just break us down and keep us from knowing the truth. And keep us from knowing the truth when we let those things happen inside of us. And we begin to suffer. I want to talk about this point for a second because before we go back to the story, um, this, is, this, is, this is important. This happens in our lives so frequently. It happens in my life. Um, I know I can speak from experience. But we let that guilt and shame create an internal narrative about how other people will respond, how they'll react if only they knew the truth, if only they knew the truth of what we did. We let that uh, lie to us. We let that color what we're going to do. We create expectations of them. That guilt and shame, those things separate us from others. They separate our relationships. This separation occurs even before we know how the other person will react. They occur right at the moment after we've done whatever we've done. They occur right at that moment. And then it begins to get bigger and bigger, this separation. We essentially drive a wedge into our relationship as we let fear and guilt build up. So first we do something to screw up the relationship. And then we drive it further apart with a wedge in between it. That's, that's how it happens very often. I'm, I'm sure anybody can uh, relate to this. But this is the absolute essence of sin, okay? So I'm going to break down sin now. This is the absolute essence of sin. In its most basic sense, sin is self-destructive separation. That's what sin is. You want to know what sin is? It's self-destructive separation. It is separation because it drives a wedge in our relationships caused by fear and guilt and shame that we have within us. And it's self-destructive because when we don't confront the issues, we make the problems worse. When you lie to somebody and then try to hide it and then have to cover up with another lie, keep the first one going, the chasm gets further and further and further. And when we don't confront it, we just tack on to it. It's almost an either or. But here's the key. When we don't confront it, what we're doing is assuming how others will respond. We essentially steal from people their ability to respond, their ability to forgive, their ability to reconcile with us. We take that from them by not confronting it. 
by driving the wedge deeper. Sin only separates us from others and from God because we allow it to separate us. We allow it to separate us because we won't come back and acknowledge what we did. If we ever acknowledged it, if we ever owned up to it, there might be reconciliation. There might be, but we don't allow for that. And in how it relates to God, we might find out very quickly that all God ever wanted to do was restore our relationship. Jesus says that exact same thing uh, in a passage earlier in Luke. He says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. This is Jesus talking. Jerusalem, Jerusalem. You killed the prophets and stoned to death those who are sent to you. Many times I wanted to gather your people as a hen gathers her chick under her wings, but you wouldn't let me. This is Jesus saying, that God sent emissaries and he's right, reached out with love so many times. But people, because of their guilt and shame, the fear in their minds, they wouldn't allow it. They wouldn't allow it. They kept pulling back. They kept hiding. When we remain separated from others, we rob them of the opportunity to respond. We rob it. We've decided for them how, we will, or how they have to respond. And so if we go back to the story of the prodigal son, the son finally decides to own up to his mistakes. It says he realized what he was doing. And so he decides uh, to go back to his father, and he prepares this I'm sorry speech. But the speech, the speech, the way it's laid out, it determines for his father how he has to respond. Listen to the speech. Father, I've sinned against you and God. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son, but let me be like one of your servants. He's already decided for his father that there shouldn't be reconciliation that he could never be a son again. He took that out of his father's hands. I can't be your son, but maybe you would let me be your slave. He's, he's, taken, the, he's taken the response away from him. But let's finish the story. In verse 20, it says, So the son returned home to his father. And while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming. Filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. His son said to him, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But his father said to the servants, Quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet and kill the calf we've been fattening. We must celebrate with a feast for the son of mine was dead and now has returned to life. He was lost, but now he's found. Let the party begin, is what it says in, in the message. Let the party begin. So when we sin, those actions create shame, guilt, and separation from others. That's what happens. But all too often, that separation builds in our minds and in our hearts into something far worse than the original actions. Far worse. We have to be very careful not to let the internalization of shame and guilt write our story because it can write a really bad story. We have to be careful not to let the guilt and shame presuppose how people will respond, because that's when sin is at its worst, when it perpetuates itself, when it perpetuates the separation. Not just the original thing, but the growth of it. In the story, when the son is returning home, it says even when he was far off, even when he was far off, his father saw him and ran to him ran to him. He didn't sit on the porch drinking his coffee, checking his watch, reading the paper. Oh, there's my son. Well, he'll get here soon. 
No, it says he, he was watching and he ran to him. The whole time the son was gone, the father was waiting for him to come back. Watching for him, desiring for him to come back. It wasn't the father keeping the son away. It wasn't, it wasn't the father saying, you made your choice. You're out. It was the son feeling like he couldn't come back. I think that's amazing. I think that's amazing that the father was waiting with open arms. Not, not setting out a bunch of hoops for his son to jump through. Not waiting for some act of repentance. Not waiting for him to prove it to him. Just waiting with arms open wide. So what is God's heart? What is God's heart? The Apostle John says that God is love, and in him there is no darkness. Now, I know you've heard that verse used a handful of times recently. But God is love, and in him there is no darkness. And that, that is something amazing just to think about. Especially when we think about what God desires for, him, for us and what his heart is. And the question... Uh, what is God's heart or how do I know God's heart comes back to love, I think. And what is love? If you've ever been to a wedding, you've probably heard Paul's love chapter. And I think we have, uh, I think we have a slide for this. But I want to read Paul's love chapter here. Paul says, Love is patient and kind. Love is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. It does not demand its own way. It is not irritable and it keeps no record of being wronged. It does not rejoice about injustice but rejoices whenever the truth wins out. Love never gives up, never loses faith, is always hopeful, and endures through every circumstance. And while we read this at weddings and other events like that, it's not about marital love necessarily. necessarily. It's about love. It's about what love is. And the scripture says that God is love. So it's a kind of a depiction of what God is. So I want to read it one more time, but I have, a, I have another slide prepared. Instead of the word love, I want to insert the word God. Would you, would you read this with me? Uh, wait for it to come up here. Let's read this together. God is patient and kind. God is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. He does not demand his own way. He is not irritable and keeps no record of being wrong. Next slide, please. He does not rejoice about injustice, but rejoices whenever the truth wins out. God never gives up, never loses faith, is always hopeful, and endures through every circumstance. Let that, let that marinate for a second. Reading it that way. It's all fine and good when love is like that. It's abstract and, you know, it works. But when you insert God there, uh, my favorite one uh, in, in, that, in that list, once you've inserted God, is that God is not irritable. Sometimes we think of God as, as irritable, like we're continually doing the same thing and God's getting, just getting irritated, he's getting frustrated, but God's not irritable. So now, is God waiting for us to appease him or provide acceptable sacrifice for our sin, come to him with I'm, our I'm sorry speech? I don't believe so. I believe God is lovingly waiting for us to realize that when we live and act apart from him, doing the things that naturally bring regret and shame and guilt and fear and anxiety and separation, all these things, 
we naturally begin to distance ourselves from God. We naturally distance ourselves from God. We feel the weight of sin. But all these things can be forgotten and left behind. You can call it repentance if you want. But it can be forgotten and left behind by simply recognizing the inability of any of those things to ever bring us wholeness, joy, love, peace. We can leave them at any time and return to the life-giving love of God. You can call this finding God. You can call it coming to Christ. You can call it being saved. You can call it whatever you want to call it. But what it is is a leaving behind of things that we cling to because we don't think God will take us back. Because we think that whatever we've done cannot be forgiven. Have you ever heard someone say that? You don't know what I've done. Maybe you've invited someone to church before and they're like, oh, you don't know what I've done, man. You don't know what's in my past. I've said it. You may have said it. But it's the mindset that seeps in. And among other things, it, it will stop us from ever trying to engage God again. But don't forget the end of the story. Don't forget the end of the story. The son decides to throw caution to the wind and go back to his father. And as soon as the father sees him, he runs to him. Arms outstretched, embraces him. It says he hugs and he kisses him. And, and the father doesn't make him jump through any hoops or, or prove anything to him. In fact, the, the son starts in with his I'm sorry speech, right? He starts right into it. The text says, uh, Father, I'm not worthy of being your son. I've sinned against you. And the father's not even listening, He's not even paying attention. He's hugging him. He's kissing him. And he's calling for his team, his servants, to bring out, bring out a robe, bring out the ring, bring out sandals, get the, get the party ready, right? He's not, he doesn't even care about the speech. I think so many times we're so worried about people's responses to what we've done, and then when we actually bring it up, they don't even notice. The thing that we built up in our mind that was this big, big deal, that's fine. I didn't, even, I didn't even realize it. How often does that happen? And, and all that life that we've lost in between those moments, worrying about it. Sin, in its most proper sense, is separating ourselves from God. Separating ourselves from God. Too often, sin is thought of as something that God doesn't like, like breaking a law, breaking a rule. It's like God says, don't do this, and then we do it, so now we're sinners. That's not... That's a bad interpretation of sin. It misses the core. Sin isn't just breaking God's rules or letting God down. Sinning means separating. When we sin, we create distance in our relationship. I'm going to just drive that home if I haven't already. It means creating separation in our relationship with God. But it's we who create the distance, not God. God is forever standing on the porch, straining his eyes into the distance, and waiting for us to come back. And if we continue to see sin as actions we commit, then all we will ever expect of God is someone who needs to be appeased. That's all we can ever expect of God. If all we see is sin is this action and that action and that action, then we feel like we have to make reparations for this action and that action, and we start our I'm sorry speech, and we get the whole list, and we make sure we don't leave anything out. And that's, how, that's how it goes. We just see some, God as someone who needs to be appeased, someone who's going to judge us. The heart of the Father becomes judgment. But if we begin to understand sin as a fundamental separation between ourselves and God, then we become convinced, just like the Apostle Paul said, that neither death nor life, 
neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The only thing that keeps us from God is fear, guilt, and shame telling us that we can't go back, we can't be forgiven. But no matter when we turn back, God is waiting with outstretched arms. And that, that is the heart of the Father. That no matter what happens, we can always go back home. And God's love is always there for us. We stand.